HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome to the third season of Meat and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and HRN's executive director, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Today is the 28th day of the longest government shutdown in history. 800,000 federal employees have gone without pay, and as bills begin to pile up, putting food on the table feels a lot more important than the partisan impasse. At HRN, we discovered that the shutdown has impacted our food system in some unexpected ways. Routine inspections on produce and processed foods have been suspended, and D.C. restaurants are struggling without the typical lunch crowds. Between furloughs, farms, and food stamps, we'll explore the ways politics have affected what's on our plates. We begin our story locally. Dylan Hoyer takes a look at how the unreliable nature of federal funding is impacting New Yorkers. With President Trump focused on building a wall, other critical issues have fallen to the wayside, like food stamps. 38 million Americans face uncertainty about whether they'll be able to afford groceries in the coming months. That's how many people rely on SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, more commonly referred to as food stamps. SNAP has been under siege lately between drastic cuts proposed by the Trump administration, farm bill negotiations, and now the shutdown. Funding for the program has only been approved through February. So how are federal budget negotiations affecting those who lack food security here in New York City? There are nearly 1.6 million New Yorkers who rely on SNAP to feed themselves and their families every single day. And so when we talk about the impact of the shutdown of the federal government, there is a real impact on our friends and neighbors. That's Amit Baga. He works with the New York City Human Resources Agency, which is responsible for distributing federal funding for SNAP in the five boroughs. We really do see it as our job, not only to administer the benefits, but to really communicate with New Yorkers any changes to those benefits. Mayor de Blasio released a statement this week affirming that funding for the program is out of his domain. Of course, our mission is to try in any way we can to lessen the blow. But at the kind of level we're talking about here, even the resources of a city as big as New York City will be quickly exhausted. Literally, in the course of a few months, we would run out of any money 
that we have to address this crisis. SNAP is widely considered the cornerstone of our country's safety net, but recently it's become a point of political leverage, with $4.5 billion of monthly federal spending on the line. For decades now, we have had a social safety net in place in this country that has helped Americans get by when they need a little bit of help. That social safety net isn't a month-to-month lease. It's a permanent contract. Anxiety exists among SNAP recipients as well as those working to provide hunger relief, according to Joan Benefiel. She's the program director for the Greenpoint Hunger Program, which serves 800 people a month through its food pantry in North Brooklyn. I felt like these support systems were pretty unshakable, which I guess is naive and a little too hopeful, and certainly for the current state of things, because they are absolutely shakable, and that's what's happening. A lapse in funding for SNAP would be a broken promise to those most vulnerable in our communities. But its impact would not be limited to those who receive food stamps. Every dollar of SNAP that is issued actually translates into more than $1.70 in local economic activity. We will start to see an economic impact in our city if there start to be longer-term changes to SNAP. Money spent using SNAP is invested back into our economy through retailers big and small. According to the Center of Budget and Policy Priorities, SNAP purchases account for 10% of what Americans spend on food. If SNAP funding is sacrificed, a bigger crisis may be on the way. What do you do if you have to choose between food or life or death medicine or a roof over your head, not to mention all the kinds of basics like hygiene basics that let you even get out of the house? What do you do? SNAP funding is responsible for subsidizing the groceries of those in need. But its contribution to the well-being of individuals, families, and our economy is immeasurable. The foundation for SNAP was laid in 1933 by the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which was designed to support low-income farmers. SNAP is now part of the Farm Bill and is one of many programs the federal government uses to subsidize farming nationwide. In our next story, Kevin Wheeler takes a look at how the government shutdown has affected agriculture. The government shutdown recently produced a peculiar image. Donald Trump standing behind a table absolutely stacked with delicacies from major fast food chains. Burgers, pizza, nuggets, you name it. The feast was held to celebrate Clemson's victory in the college football national championship. But let us take a moment to consider the farmers who grow corn and soy, two major ingredients in fast food. There's been some speculation that farms across the country will suffer from missing out on loan money and other aid provided by the Farm Services Agency. In New York, the story is similar. With them not being able to visit their local FSA office is probably the biggest impact at this time. Um, it's the, there's a lot of farmers that rely on commodity loans at the end of the year to pay off bills. And um, since the offices are not open, those loans aren't available to them. That's Colleen Klein, the executive director of the New York Corn and Soybean Growers Association. This association has 250 member farms, and New York is no slouch when it comes to corn and soy. According to the USDA, New York State produced 78 million bushels of corn and almost 12 million bushels of soybeans in 2017. According to Colleen, President Trump initiated an aid program to help farmers hurt by his trade war with China. Right now, however, 
farmers can't sign up. The FSA offices are closed. Colleen said some farmers may have put off signing up due to 2018's very long harvest. Still, farmers are finding other ways to finance their operations. They're going to a, a private bank instead of the government bank. Um, I, I don't want to say that it's not a big deal. It's not as devastating as everyone wants to, to make it out to be. I did not have any farmers reaching out to me about the government shutdown. Where the government shutdown has federal workers languishing on furlough, garbage piling up in national parks, and some brewers unable to put out new beer, it appears that for now, many of New York's corn and soy farmers will remain unaffected by the shutdown. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Our next story looks at an industry you probably didn't know was impacted by the shutdown. Nina Medvinskaya explores the holdups affecting the craft beer community. When the government shut down, most federal niches felt the pinch immediately. But its furloughing effects are also rippling into non-federal spheres. Last week, Stephen Colbert's jocular monologue detailing the bottlenecked state of the beer industry served as a much-needed moment of levity during a period fraught with instability. After all, worrying about the lack of new beer labels on our shelves should be last on our list of priorities right now. Right? Well, not exactly. The Alcohol, Tobacco, and Trade Bureau, the TTB for short, which is responsible for regulating alcohol and tobacco products, is overseen by the Treasury Department, which is a government agency. So since the big shutdown, the TTB has been padlocked shut as well, meaning that those in the brewing business are facing a heap of unsavory challenges. You know, the TTB, I think, is a really important agency. It's definitely focused on consumer protection. The process starts by us submitting a a label, and that has all the pertinent information worded correctly. Once uh, your label kind of lands on someone's desk at the TTB, they own it until it gets pushed through the system. The actual approval for them takes about uh, 9 to 13 days, depending on what their backlog is. That was Brandon Jacobs, Director of Brewing Operations at McKellar Brewing in San Diego, California. McKellar is one of the more fortunate breweries, with locations in various states and an established following in their own. When the government shut down, McKellar was four days into the TTB application process for a beer that they intended to release nationally, a plan that is no longer feasible for them. 
This particular beer is a you know New England style double IPA. It is meant to be drank fresher than you can even imagine. So any delay in just getting the beer out of the tank and into package is detrimental to the quality of the beer. Although the brewery can't distribute across state lines without the TTB's approval, they can still distribute new beers in-state by gaining approval from California's alcoholic beverage control. This is how they're salvaging the overabundance of their unapproved double IPA from a flushed fate down the drain. But not all breweries are so lucky. Some are mostly dependent on their out-of-state distributors and are left with no choice but to dump large quantities of their precious yet unapproved blends. We aren't hearing as much from brewers who have long-established flagships in the market that are a high percentage of their sales, since they'll continue to be able to sell those. Uh, But we are hearing from established brewers who rely on that innovation um, and either need a formula or need, um, you know, new labels to be approved so that they can put those new products in the marketplace uh, across state lines. So it's certainly an important issue for brewers and one that's only going to grow as the shutdown drags on. That was Bart Watson, chief economist of the Brewers Association an organization that promotes, protects, and represents craft brewers, their beers, and the large community of brewing enthusiasts across the United States. One of the biggest hurdles he's observed in the industry concerns breweries that were just on the cusp of opening their business, but weren't able to get a permit from the TTB before the government shutdown, without which they can't operate or sell beer to the public at all. Startup breweries, you know, maybe the ones who this is the most existential for them since, you know, often they're already, you know, they already have leased a building, they're paying rent, uh, they have those costs that are coming online, but um, they're unable to start turning into revenue. Katie Marisic, the federal affairs manager of the Brewers Association, also stressed this point. There's no income coming in if you aren't able to sell a product, but you are still making payments, paying rent or paying a mortgage, paying for your equipment, hiring people to start the brewing process, etc. There's money going out and not coming in. People who are looking to start these businesses or expand have already put a lot of their capital into it, but also a significant personal investment too. When the government does reopen, the DTB will be looking at an overwhelming backlog since there are now more than 7,000 breweries that employ 135,000 people directly. And with the TTB processing almost 35,000 label applications from all beverages a year, that makes for almost 100 label approvals a day. So basically, for every day that the shutdown continues, that's another 100 beverages that could have been approved but have yet to even be considered. When it first hit, you know, I assumed it was only going to be a couple of days, like most of these shutdowns seem to be recently. But uh, we're now trying to prepare for what might come. And if this shutdown continues long term, how do we continue to sell beer to our distributor partners, uh, you know, outside of California? While McKellar's sales team has been getting their overstock double IPA out to various tap rooms in California, Their inability to collaborate with their out-of-state distributors jeopardizes some of their most treasured partnerships, those which are reliant on a steady influx of new innovative formulas. A problem that isn't dire yet, but could become so, especially for newly formed breweries if the shutdown continues to lag. Katie Marisic has been stressing this point to government officials in D.C. We don't want to see anybody losing money or being able to miss something on their production schedule because they're not able to get things approved. We're making sure that legislators know that these are real businesses and this is a potential problem for them. 
And while we have our trusted veteran beer labels to depend on and help us settle into our evenings, for all us beer fanatics out there, it's valuable to remember that our local breweries need our support right now, and that if the shutdown perseveres, some of our favorite tap rooms may not. While beer labeling has come to a sudden halt, other changes to our food system under the Trump administration have been brewing since before the government shutdown. Ariama Long brings us a story about a shift in school lunch policy. Just before the government shut down, the president's administration announced the rollback of the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. The act was a part of Michelle Obama's Healthy Eating for Kids initiative back in 2010. Schools were required to update their lunches to include whole grains, fruits and vegetables, lean protein, and low-fat dairy. It also included a flexible rule saying that schools that couldn't adapt as quickly could file to opt out. Almost a decade later, about 80% of schools had made the change. In December 2018, under Trump's administration, that little flexible rule has become a big deal. Specifically, the rule now states that only half the grains served need to be whole grains, which makes room for refined breads, pastas, and tortillas. Certain milks can be flavored again, and the salt content is relaxed, allowing a slower change to low-sodium foods. Chef Jamie Oliver, British restaurateur and author, sat down with our host, Katie, to share his thoughts on the current state of school lunches. The point of the standards for American school kids is what does lowest common denominator look like? Once we've, you know, once we've achieved the standards that are legislation, we still have the problem with compliance, right? So, um, you know, so to downgrade it is terrible. The UK's national school lunches were in jeopardy, too. The Independent reported last year that school food budgets were threatened by rising tariffs meaning they would have to consider not serving kids hot food in schools and switch to cold sandwiches. Their government is still in a stalemate over the secession from the European Union, or Brexit. No deal with the EU means a grocery store run might result in a 27% price hike for the average consumer, or an increase up to $12 billion a year in the U.S. terms, according to Bloomberg Markets. So Jamie, who's a big advocate for good accessible school food could relate the level of public health in children in america like britain is at such a cliff edge and you guys are worse off than we are that to go backwards is an unforgivable thing jamie's passionate about the subject as school nutrition has been a huge part of his life's work when I lived in East L.A., you know, what I noticed was not a couple of kids, but whole schools of kids that had a little sheen of bulletproofness and youth about them taken away. Why? Why does that happen? It's because there is the worry of their own direct family nearest and dearest to them that is at jeopardy because of diet-related disease. So, um, you know, for Mr. Trump to do this is callous. Callous. Beyond. He, he, he is fucking with a system that he has no, everything he says, I'm an expert in that. He knows nothing about the school food program in the US of A, right? I know way more than him. And if you give a child uh, optimal nutrition at a school food level, it's more than just food. The, the, they undoubtedly, in my opinion, will be better people, better citizens. In the States, the USDA 
just released an update that at least the child nutrition programs have been given money through this March during the longest government shutdown in U.S. history. The New York State Director of the Child Nutrition Program did confirm that they are funded for now and that the flexibility rule is in effect. Beyond that, other departments like the FDA and the USDA's Food and Nutrition Services are still furloughed. You have reached the FDA's Office of Media Affairs. I'm unavailable at the moment. I am out of the office. We're sorry. Your call cannot be completed at this time. Their websites aren't even being updated during the shutdown. And as for our friends overseas, Parliament just held another historic vote that shot down the Brexit deal, creating more problems as the departure from the EU is set for March 29th. I don't believe that nourishment of children in schools should be political at all. It should never be political. It's a human right. Between government deals and shutdowns, it seems like both British and American kids in school are getting the short end of the carrot stick as far as their lunch goes. Government's not able to get it together. It's more than a little scary. That's our show. Thanks for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode of Meet in 3. We'll check out how New York's food scene is changing in 2019. Special thanks this week to Dylan Hoyer, Ariama Long, Nina Medvinskaya, and Kevin Wheeler for their reporting. Meet in 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with lead production for this episode by Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.